The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Trust you're not surprised at the text of Scripture I read for you today. We've studied Paul's letter to the Philippians a number of years ago, going through it carefully. I come to the first chapter. Really, the entire text I'm bringing before you is is verse 6, the centerpiece verse of this passage, and really almost the centerpiece of the book. But I'll read the first 11 verses of Philippians to set it in its context. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because your partnership in the gospel for the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's holy word. As I was reflecting this past week about the congregation's 50th anniversary, I thought of other churches I have served. At least one had already passed 150 years together. Another was much younger than we are. But I thought of one that my wife and I attended while I was in seminary. All of our four years in Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Massachusetts, Carol was the organist, and we attended the Trinitarian Congregational Church of West Gloucester, Massachusetts. I knew that that church had far, far deeper roots than ours, and I went online to see if they had a website, which most churches do these days. Sure enough, I was able to be reminded both to my gratification but then to my tremendous dismay, some things about that church where we once worshipped. The earliest roots of that congregation on the shore of Massachusetts near a fishing town of Gloucester was set in place by a predecessor congregation 300 
and 75 years ago as 17th century Puritans came there to Massachusetts and honored the Lord, fought battles. They literally worshipped in the wilderness for some period of time. Along the way, the church acquired the name Trinitarian Congregational because the Unitarian crisis broke hard in Boston and its environs, and they had to distinguish themselves, we're for the three-person God. That church accomplished many things across its years, but as I looked at their website today, I was filled with tremendous dismay at seeing that the main thing the website was trumpeting about the uniqueness of this church today is that they are a, quote, open and affirming congregation boldly proclaiming homosexuality and transgenderism as the right of all those who would worship God in Christ. That church certainly has reached an amazing historic milestone worth celebrating, 375 years. But its lamp of Bible truth has apparently been extinguished some time ago. Philippians 1.6 is a keynote text for Paul's entire letter to Philippi. We know this was a letter to people that were very dear to Paul. This congregation raised no quarrels or uh, splits or anything like that with him that had to be corrected by hard words. He had only gentle words of friendship and commendation for the Philippians. We know that. But here, as Paul wrote to this more or less favorite congregation, he sounded a theme that 1-6 captures quite well. And if we were to restate that theme, it is just simply this. God does not start anything that he does not intend to finish. On this 50th anniversary of Westminster Presbyterian Church, my role must not be to act as a pep rally leader for you, cheering us on to say, hip, hip, hooray for Westminster. Aren't we great? I dare not do that because we are not great. Our God is great. The God who has led us in many decades of the past. And we dare not say, look what we have accomplished because we haven't accomplished it. I want to show you some ways before I finish today how it was only God that accomplished things that might have looked like a human accomplishment, but were not. Now, it's an honorable thing for us to be here, to lift up the name of our God and Savior together, to sing His praise, to greet each other, to indulge in some nostalgia as we look at historical items later on in the day and hear from some folks who have formerly served here and I hope maybe educated our newer members on where this church came from. They may very well not know that much about its past. Long ago, though, someone wrote our history, well, I know who wrote it, and took Philippians 1.6 as words of a theme for this church, a good work begun. We know where that came from, Philippians 1.6. And Paul here is giving us a text that I think can be a mandate today to guide our celebration and take us from here with a proper spirit of praise in our hearts. He gave Philippians the assurance that 
their individual members who trusted in Christ and were the habitations of the Holy Spirit were going to be gathered at God's final destination, the day of Christ, it's called. There are places where in the New Testament the reference simply says, that day. And there isn't any question in those who read what that day means. The day of Christ's appearing and the final disposition of all things in the universe as we gather before our King and Great Judge. That's what Paul was leading to here in this text. So the overall theme that I draw from Philippians 1.6 is not surprising. It's plain. It's well stated there. It's simply this. God never starts any genuine work of his own that he does not intend to finish, to bring to his desired completion at the end of all things. So I first want to just consider the text itself, maybe asking as a lead question, what is this good work that Philippians 1.6 is speaking about? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Certainly Paul was speaking of something happening inside of people. He began it in you. So believer, I assume he's talking about you as much as anyone who lived a long time ago in Philippi. He's talking about a work that God does by his Holy Spirit on the inside, in the mind and soul, where he transforms human beings to become saints of his, believers in Jesus Christ. This isn't something that is self-generated. It's not something we decide to pick up and take on as a hobby we might pursue for a while and then drop it. It's something that God does, a transformational work of the fundamental part of us, man or woman, boy or girl. It's what is done in us by our spirit receiving the work of the Holy Spirit to trust in Jesus Christ, to call him Lord and to walk with him all our days. And it begins, we know, with a spiritual awakening. Call it being born again. Call it regeneration. It's the same thing. And Paul remembered, I'm sure as he wrote, how he had been present when these very people, the Philippians, were first regenerated, first awakened. I'll remind you of it. You can stick your finger, if you want, in Acts chapter 16 that has the historical account of how this particular church began. We don't know this about every church of the New Testament, but we know how the Philippian church got started. Acts 16 tells that Paul was literally like a midwife bringing to spiritual birth the first people that formed that initial congregation. If you would read it, you would find the description. I'll just refer to it in a broad way. How Paul came there with Silas and possibly some other disciple. And he had not been in Philippi before. It was a strategic city, a Roman city, a city that he hoped the gospel would get a foothold in. And not knowing his way around, he apparently spent the Lord's day alongside a river where he preached. Maybe he just started preaching to his own party who were with him. I'm not sure. But someone heard him preach a woman named Lydia, Acts 16:14 says, Lydia was there, a wealthy woman with a substantial household, 
and it tells us a very specific and important thing about Lydia. I read it there, Acts 16, 14. God opened Lydia's heart to give attention to the message that Paul preached. Note that it does not say Lydia opened her heart. It does not say Paul opened her heart. It says God opened the heart of Lydia and awakened her to do what otherwise had no footing or no beginning in her life. God, by His Spirit, decisively acted to wake Lydia out of spiritual stupor to new life in the gospel. And that is not some exceptional act that was done there. That was, of course, the fundamental act that must occur for every Christian having a beginning that God would awaken us from being dead in trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 says we are, to what Ephesians 2.9 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus that he might do his work in us. And then you go on with the story. Acts 16 continues. In short order, the gospel got Paul in trouble, as it always did, and he was thrown in jail, a Roman jail. And you remember that story. You probably learned it in Sunday school, how he and Silas were in the prison singing hymns of praise in the watches of the night, and an earthquake came and shook the jail doors, and they opened. The jailer came running, pretty sure he was in big trouble because all the prisoners would have run away, but they didn't. And Paul called out to the jailer and said, don't be afraid, we're all here, don't worry. And the man was so dumbfounded, you remember his cry. He said, sirs, he had heard these guys. He had already marked in his mind these were unusual men. They praised a God he had not heard of before. Now here they were with a free chance to run off into the night, and they were there waiting for him to come with jail doors knocked off their hinges. And the jailer said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? To be like you, in other words, to have what you have. And he was told, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your house. So God was awakening people and beginning his work in Philippi. Acts 16 tells us about it. You could see a summary of what was happening there in Colossians 2.13, if you would, where we read, you who were dead. Dead, the Bible emphasizes. You weren't just weak in your trespasses. You were dead. Dead people don't do anything to improve their condition. You who were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made alive together with Christ by canceling the legal record that stood against us. The same God who powerfully does that in lives, Paul is writing now, will see that work through to the appearance of that life at the judgment throne of Christ where that one will be declared righteous, imputed righteousness, counted to your account that was not your own because of Christ offering his righteous life on your behalf at his cross. My wife and I currently look out our front door. We're in a little bit of a nuisance phase in our new place where we live. Nuisance in the sense that 50 yards from our door, we're watching a three-story apartment building under construction. And it seems like any day that we decide it might be good to sleep in a little bit, the guy with the 
jackhammer thing that breaks up the rocks shows up at 7 a.m. and starts in. They apparently have found a lot of rock there. We've been watching a building go up from a hole in the ground to concrete forms of a basement and walls going up. Roof trusses are almost all on. But it's still quite a mess, lumber and concrete block and everything all over the place and machines doing all kinds of things. And you look at it and you say, oh yes, it's definitely going to be a building, but it isn't there yet. But we look out and know that we live in a building that that same contractor started in the same way and finished for us. And we know he did a quality job. And so we're looking and saying, well, it's pretty likely, we think, that this contractor will be able to finish that big job that's a mess outside our door right now. That there will be a three-story apartment building there and people will move in and carpet will be on the floors and stripes will be on the parking lot and everything will be ready, finished, done. The contractor has such a reputation that we're pretty confident that that will be the case. Well, here we're reading that very much like that, God by His Spirit is the creator and designer and finisher of personal salvation in his people and thus in the corporate joining together of his people as a church, he works there as well on a group dynamic just as he does on an individual dynamic. How wretchedly unsure and uncertain is the work of salvation believed in by some people today who say, with their Arminian human emphasis, oh, it's all up to us. We make the decision. We'd better hold on tight. We better not lose it. Maybe we'll let go and drop that salvation before we reach heaven. I would that you would believe the biblical gospel. Salvation is God's work from beginning to end, and He who begins it brings it to completion in the day of Christ. It's God's work. God can't lie. He can't falter. He can't quit on something. He will not fall away or lose his ability to hold on to anyone in whom he begins his genuine redemptive work. Well, that's the basic message of Philippians 1.6, applying to both individuals and to a whole group of individuals in a church. But now I want to apply the text in the rest of my time here. And I want to be very specific about that and apply it to what I and you have watched unfold over a 50-year period of time in this particular work of God that we call Westminster Presbyterian Church. I want to give you some very specific things that I've been able to observe. I took time to work and add to the excellent history that Mr. Mailer did for us years ago and that book you're going to receive going out of the sanctuary today and brought it up to date so it's got my mind stirred through a lot of events. And as I was writing and recapping and updating, I was marveling, I was worshiping as I thought of how God has worked over 50 years. To better understand the context of Westminster beginning in the mid-20th century, you have to look beyond Lancaster, Pennsylvania, you have to look at what was happening in Protestant denominations throughout America and really in a heritage that had come across the ocean from Germany and other places. And maybe you don't know this so well, but throughout the early first half of the 20th century, there was a great plague of unbelief that crept across the ocean 
from Germany in particular and from other places where the Bible was being critically evaluated that changed what was believed in many Protestant mainline denominations. It's all outlined in a wonderful book that we've studied in our adult Sunday school before, Gresham Machen's classic book, one of the best Christian books of the 20th century, called Christianity and Liberalism. J. Gresham Machen diagnosed what was going on in the times, and he showed conclusively, and many who weren't even believers said he got it right, that for most of the early 20th century, Protestantism in America began to tolerate and even to quietly welcome another religion to take shelter within their churches and their church councils and their seminaries and their pulpits. And Machen said this other religion was not Christianity. It was not true to the vitals of Christianity, and yet it was there, and and people were hearing it on Sunday mornings or reading it in denominational publications or Sunday school literature and so on, and they weren't even quite sure of what they were seeing. They sort of dozed along, most of them unaware. But they weren't hearing of a Bible that had supernatural origin or spoke of supernatural miracles. They were learning, really, of a Jesus who was tremendously scaled down into a socialistic human idol of moralism, but certainly not of eternal salvation. And a new Jesus, a new religion came on the scene, and many didn't even seem to have an idea at all. It was a false faith, Machen said, a false faith that quacked like a duck but it really was a hissing serpent. It was no duck. I want to tell you, I have come to particularly respect the fact that our church was primarily founded by 14 businessmen, ruling elders and deacons, who gathered on May 17, 1968, at Anson Luce's home in East Petersburg. There was no minister present. And I almost want to say, praise the Lord. (laughs) Now, I don't want to put down the place at all of Mr. Siddons, who soon came into the picture, but he wasn't in the picture that night. These were laymen. They were businessmen. They were used to selling and buying and keeping a business afloat. They were men of practical vision. And if they saw a problem, they said, well, we better address this problem. We better do something about it. You know what I'm afraid of? If it had been 14 ministers, I can tell you, I'm going to self-indict here. Fourteen ministers would have said, ah, we need a study committee. We'll study the problem. Six months later, we would have issued a 150-page report on the problem. Then we would have discussed the report. Then we would have decided to lay aside the report for lack of conclusive unity on it. Well, that didn't happen. Fourteen lay leaders took a look at the problem that J. Gresham Machen had diagnosed, and they said, we need a practical solution. We need a sharp cut against the status quo. And they went forward with what I call nothing less than a revolutionary stroke. You know, this past week being Independence Day, again, I'm not over-dramatizing when I say in many ways what they did was every bit as revolutionary and courageous as what the founders of America did when they signed the Declaration of Independence, because these men said, we don't care what this is going to do to our reputation in the business community. We don't care what scorn other mainline church leaders might bring down upon us, and it did come. 
we must do this thing because we're apparently rolling along on the broad way that leads to condemnation and we need to pick the narrow way that leads to life. Now, many mid-20th century people knew that there was something wrong. Vaguely, they could go to their churches and say, you know, this message isn't the same as it was 20 years ago or 40 years ago when I was a child. But, after all, all their friends were tolerating it. And you remember the famous illustration that's been used in many ways over the years of frogs in a kettle of water. Let's take a great big kettle sitting on a stove and there's 14 frogs in it. And gradually there's a flame under that kettle of water and the temperature is rising very gradually. And so you've got one frog that looks to the other frog and it says, you know what, it's getting warmer here than it used to be. And the other frog says, yeah, I noticed that. You know what, someday I may need to jump out of this kettle if it gets any warmer. But the kettle keeps getting warmer and keeps reaching a boil, and there's very little jumping that went on in those days. In fact, there were thousands of well-boiled frogs, is what there were. We give credit to those who were not boiled in the kettle. They saw what was happening and stepped out first. I want to give you about five different distinct areas by way of illustration of how I see that God himself was active in the ministry of Westminster Church. Believe me, this, this part of the sermon was not hard to compose. The only hard part was how to exclude 20 other examples I could easily have given. But one thing I think of that we have to emphasize today is the unyielding adherence to the inerrancy and the authority of one book that has kept this ministry on track all these years. If you want to know one thing, this is it. One tie where we have to take our stand, one place to set our foot, it is, this is the supernatural, inerrant, infallible word of the living God. And anyone who says it's anything less does not belong with us. We want to welcome any person of faith in Jesus Christ, but faith in him begins with his word. And the fundamental word of allegiance that we must have from anyone who would be an officer with us, a pastor with us, a deacon with us, is I believe these supernatural scriptures are entirely from God. And there I take my stand with Luther. Here I stand, I can't do anything else, Luther said. The distinctives of the Reformed faith as shown in the Scripture and taught in something like the Westminster Confession, which is a secondary confession but a very valuable tool, are non-negotiables because they teach us the sovereignty of God, the God of grace, and that God's sovereignty rules supreme over any human act of striving. That has been true for 50 years. May God make it true for many decades yet to come. I won't be here. May God put it as a burning zeal in your heart as a member of this church to challenge your officers 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Are we still upholding the Word of God supreme over everything? If we're not, I'm walking. I'm jumping out of the kettle. I will not be a boiled frog. I hope you're ready to say that. 
A second clear evidence I've seen that Westminster is a work blessed by God's working in us and through us are the patterns of growth we've had for 50 years. Steady growth, never, never really spectacular. Actually, the, the most spectacular was at the very beginning when almost 200 people attended the first service. Beyond that, it's always just been a steady, steady rising curve. Now, there have been a time or two when numbers have slipped back, but as I study the history, it seems the only times that they really slipped back in a noticeable way was when we sent away from here 50 or 70 or 100 people to start another church. And as you know, that's happened several times, most recently with the group we sent to Proclamation Church in Mount Joy. But before that, a wonderful church called Harvest in Lampeter. Before that, a church on the west side of Lancaster called Wheatland, now exceeding. My wife and I worshiped there just a couple weeks ago. When we went to the early service, I was dumbfounded how many people were there at the early service. Over 400 people now worshiping at Wheatland. Praise God for that. Reformed in Ephrata before that in the 1980s. Four congregations where we deliberately sent our people out. We said, you know, it's really tight here. We don't have room for you to sit. Go somewhere else. And they went somewhere else, and somebody else filled up the pew right away. God does that. We don't do that. We didn't have sales techniques. We don't have seeker techniques to say, well, what does the world want to hear? Let's, all we have to do is do what the world wants to hear and see, and, and that'll get the people in the door no matter what. Let's have a whole monthly series of sermons based on movies. Ouch, you may know where I'm going, so I won't go there. Based on movies? Are you kidding? Do you realize that it's about 3,000 people that have passed through Westminster Church declaring, I speak of my faith in Jesus Christ as my only Lord and Savior. I, I consulted the roll book. In the first 25 years, there were 1,226 men, women, and children who joined this church. In the second 25 years, 1,862 people, total of 3,128. Now you say, there's not 3,128 people here. Anymore. Sure. A lot of them have graduated to heaven. A lot of them have moved to other areas. A lot of them have gone to the daughter churches. There's about 1,050 that attend now in two morning services, and we need to add to that for a realistic picture in the eyes of God the 900-some total who attend our four daughters. That gives us about 2,000 people that are the regular worshiping congregation in Lancaster County of the initial root system of Westminster Church. God did that. We didn't. Further, if you want to see his hand in another way, a third way, we see works of divine providence that he's done that, again, we couldn't do. When I came here in the 1990s, the late 19 or mid-1990s when I came, you had finished some fine facilities, the gymnasium area down there. You had lengthened the older sanctuary, and there was still some money owed on that, and everybody was probably sitting back pretty well convinced that, hey, we've got the facility we need for a long time to come. Well, we had the facility we needed for about two years, and the leadership started saying, wait a minute, there's no room. There's no room for classes. There's no room for offices. The sanctuary is stuffed. What are we going to do? This, this, to me, is one of the favorite things that I, I tell as a story about Westminster. 
we sat down, did some long-range planning, and we said, of course, we need more room. Well, a problem. Mannheim Township, like any other municipality, has requirements for building codes, and the key issue that many of you know that are in anything related to building is your lot that you build on has to be 50% green space, in other words, water can soak in, and 50%, no more than 50% hard surface, roofing, parking lot, and so on. We were at 48% hard surface. If we had brought two portable classrooms on this property, we would have violated the zoning requirement. We could not build on the property we had. What do you do? What do you do? We even started talking about, are there other large plots of land anywhere nearby? But, but one of the things we said, well, look, there is a farm right up here behind us that abuts our land. We better go and at least talk to the farmer and see if there's any chance he would sell us some land. I remember the meeting in which we said that. And I also remember that no one had approached him when at a subsequent meeting, Elder George DeLong told us that his friend, Mr. Royer, the farmer, had approached George and said, George, I see that your church is really growing. You must need more land. Would you like to buy some land? How about three acres? And we sent George back to say, how about nine? <laughs> and nine is what we got. And we got it at a price that was one-third of what was paid by the developer who's put all these houses and apartments surrounding us right now just about four or five years later. We did not instigate that. The man came to us. And had he not, and had that transaction not happened, we would have had to go somewhere else. We had no choice. We could not expand on this property. God did that. God did that. Another similar divine providence that I remember well occurred in 2006. When we were completing this building project, we had finished this sanctuary, we had a multi-million dollar mortgage, over $30,000 a month mortgage, that scares people when they hear it, on which we were quickly paying 50000 a month. But we were enough in debt and enough challenged that when the invitation came from the owner of radio station WDAC to say, would you folks like to take over a prime radio broadcast spot at 8.30 a.m. on Sunday morning. We'd like you to have it, not free, of course, about $3,000 a month worth. We'd like you to take that space. Our elders talked, looked at each other, and said, look at the budget we've got. We cannot insert $3,000 a month more in the budget. We threw out a suggestion. What if we give this opportunity to the congregation for a faith response for extra giving. You know, can we even do that? Well, I'm not going to embarrass because the man's in the congregation today, but one of our elders said, look, this is, this is God's hand. We need to do this. All we have to do is sign a one-year contract. If somehow we don't get $36,000 of extra faith giving, I'll pay the difference. Now, let me tell you, sessions sometimes have a hard time making decisions. But they didn't have a hard time making that one. Guaranteed it would happen. We signed the contract. We have been on the air at that spot for 12 years now. Every once in a very great while, we mentioned to you, we could use a little help in the radio fund. But most of the time, we don't even have to tell you. 
It has paid its way, and it has brought hundreds, literally, of folks to check out this ministry. God did that. One more way I'm going to tell you, and then I'll finish. But I see the fingerprints of our amazing God on the ministry of Westminster. Bringing to completion the work that he started is the way in which we've begun to serve refugees to Lancaster in this church. It started very small. It kind of surprised us right away. The number of folks who responded when some refugees were being helped, they told their friends in the city, and they they said, well, what church is that? I'd like to go there too. Maybe they'll help me and encourage me. I'm told that our English as a Second Language program that grew out of that has already touched more than 250 lives, different lives here, coming and going, different population. We started with mostly people from Myanmar and Nepal, Interestingly, as they got acclimated to Lancaster, they found out there were churches full of people from Myanmar and Nepal. And so now they go where people speak their language, and that's fine. We had a chance to help them along the way. Now you probably realize we have Congolese worshipers under this roof on Sunday mornings. I'm told that that service reached 60 or 70 in attendance a recent week. Now, here's an interesting thing. Of all the congregations God could have brought a whole critical mass of Congolese worshipers to, isn't it interesting that he brought them to a congregation that happens to have, in the person of Dr. John Mawara, a Swahili-speaking, mature Christian who can open the Word of God to those folks? Gee, God knows what he's doing, doesn't he? God did that. Praise his name. God is doing those kinds of surprising things among us. What's ahead? We have to wonder. We know we're going to undergo some leadership changes. I won't be in your pulpit a year from now. Mrs. Bleeker will end her wonderful music ministry in less than two months. Things are going to change. What's going to happen? Some of you are afraid and worried about that. Can I bring you a word of consolation? It's called Philippians 1.6. He who began his good work in us is going to bring it to completion in the day of Christ. You are all watching the newspaper headlines, and I understood if you haven't seen news today that a rescue effort is underway as we speak in Thailand, taking boys out of the cave. I think a couple of them are already out. We've watched that, and our hearts have been strained. We say, oh, what a terrible thing. These boys might drown. They might die because nobody can get them out of those narrow, difficult, water-filled passages that a Navy SEAL died in. How can they be extracted? Well, let me tell you something. That is a cakewalk compared to the difficulty of God taking you out of being dead in your trespasses and sins and becoming alive in Jesus Christ. We can solve that. I hope and pray that those boys will come out. Some already have. But how did we get out of the desperate situation we were in spiritually? How did we get out? God did it. Will we trust our God to go forward with us through any kind of change or trial or difficulty or challenge that is ahead in light of everything he's done? In days past. Now listen, Philippians 1 6, I gotta add this quickly, does not say everything for every Christian is just going to be happily ever after. No struggles, no strife. Doesn't say that. 
It says God will bring you to the destination. Will there be difficulties on the way to that destination? Yes. Will there be tears shed? Will there be companions lost? Will there be things that challenge every possible resource you've got? Yes. And will it be that that some of God's best disciples will suffer deep suffering or even martyrdom on their way to that heavenly destination? They will. But God Most High is pledged to a grand outcome for our souls, knowing every detail of everything we will encounter in our highs and our lows to reach that final destination. I am not telling you that it is time now for you of Westminster Presbyterian Church to sit back, fold your hands, and take it easy because God's going to work everything out happily ever after. I'm calling you to a fight of faith, a fight to persevere, to trust in God, whatever's going on, to do what Paul had to write just after, a little later in this same Philippian epistle, verses you often hear me quote, Philippians 2, 12, and 13, work out your salvation. There's a work for you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to perform it. The mighty God is going to bring his people to the day of Christ, whatever stands in their way. And I simply ask as I close, what will be the verdict of our Savior concerning you and your service in the adopted family of Christ called Westminster at that final day? May God complete his great work in you that he has begun. Our Father, how we thank you this happy day. We wish that our spirits could always be lifted this high. We wish that our faith could always be this confident. But we ask you, O God, to continue to work in us, perfect in us that which you have begun so that we might be around the throne of Christ one day with praise and honor on our lips as he turns to us and says, Well done, good and faithful servant, as he has already said to more than three-quarters of the people who started this church. Oh God, preserve us, help us, bring us through. For your praise we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.